0: Today's New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 17 through 35. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, "'Is it I, Rabbi?' He said to him, "'You have said so.'" Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, "'Take, eat, this is my body.' And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "'Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.'" I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The word of the Lord. God, our Father, we we
1: thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ Jesus that your word presents to us. And I, I do pray, Lord, that the the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this text, Lord, and that you would apply, through the work of your spirit, that you would apply the truths of these texts to our hands, to our hearts, to our heads, Father God. And we ask this in the name of Christ, in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So we come to an important point here in the Gospel of of Matthew because on the night of today's passage, Jesus will be betrayed, he will be arrested, he will be unjustly condemned, and he will receive the execution sentence of the cross. And yet, on the very edge of all of these earth-shattering events, Jesus has one non-negotiable priority. He will celebrate the Passover Passover. With his disciples. In fact, everything that happens in today's passage, it is framed around the Passover. Jesus tells his disciples: Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. In this command, we we have a convergence. We have a bringing together of two very important things. We have past and we have future. We have here the repetition of a yearly ceremony and a kind of historical innovation. We have the regularity of ritual and we have the anticipation of fulfillment. How so? Well, again, Christ and his disciples will celebrate the Passover just as all of them did every other preceding year of their life. And here in the Passover, we find regularity, we find ritual, we find pattern. But in Jesus's words, we also find something new. Christ declares in no uncertain uh, uncertain terms, My time is at hand. Something is about to happen. Something is about to change. Something is coming. Something is going to come that will fulfill and complete what has come before. And there are two primary Greek words for time, chronos and and kairos. And and, and Jesus here uses the special term of of kairos. And the standard New Testament Greek dictionary, it it describes this term as, as definite, fixed time. Another New Testament dictionary writes of it as time that has some significance. This is a special word for time, and and Christ declares to his disciples, again, on one side, I will keep the Passover with you, with my disciples. But on the other side, my kairos, my definite, fixed, significant time is at hand, Regularity and newness, pattern and completion, ritual and fulfillment. Jesus' Passover celebration is going to bring both of these things together. As Christ administers the Passover, we will find both deep remembrance and deep expectation. Some definite fixed time, Jesus' very own kairos will dawn as he and the disciples celebrate the remembrance of the past. Remembrance and expectations, beginnings and fulfillments, past and future. And so we have to step back and ask ourselves, what what exactly is the Passover celebration? Well, every year, the the people of God, they, they celebrated the Passover to commemorate how God had delivered his people, had delivered them from Egypt While in Egyptian bondage, God directed each household to kill a lamb, to eat it with unleavened bread, and then to smear the blood of the lamb upon their doorposts. And on that fateful night in Egypt, the Lord passed over the houses that were smeared with the blood of the lamb. But in each of the other households, those bare of the sacrificial blood, those houses of the Egyptians the firstborn child, was killed. And so, angered and devastated, weeping and gnashing their teeth, the Egyptians sent out the enslaved Israelites from their country. But then they changed their minds, and the Egyptians pursued after them. But then, in that great act of judgment and deliverance, the Exodus, the Egyptians were the, the, the forces were, were, were swallowed up in the sea, and, and this, of course, is the very same sea through which the Israelites had early, earlier walked through on dry land through parted waters. And in light of the mighty deliverance of God that began with the very first Passover, the Lord commanded his people, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a fast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a fast, as a feast. And each and every year since then, every faithful Israelite had done just that. And and, and by the time that Christ and his disciples are celebrating the Passover together, there had been well over a thousand Passover celebrations. And in these celebrations, the people of God not only remembered the past, but they also hoped and they expected They did this in anticipation of the greater exodus. They did this awaiting the Messiah, God's promised king who would rescue them from all bondage. And so when they celebrated the Passover, they both remembered and they hoped. They rooted themselves in the past and they hoped for the future. And we should focus on this pattern because it actually helps us live in something that we don't often think about living in. And that something is is time. The Passover taught the Israelites how to live rightly in time. And this is a big deal, especially for us in the modern West, because in many ways we have forgotten to live in time, or at least to live in it well. Think about it like this. The, the philosopher Charles Taylor, he, he, he tells us that in the modern West, we, we've stopped understanding our lives as great as part of a great narrative. We no longer believe that time has any large, big, overarching story. We no longer see time as going anywhere. Time has no fulfillment, and so time can have no kairos. Instead, Taylor tells us we, we, we tend to think of time primarily as a tool or an instrument that's at our disposal. I mean, think about the ways that we talk about time. Time is money. My time is running out. I'm out of time. I just don't have enough time in the day. That person has taken way, way too much of my time. How do we think of time? As a limited resource that's sort of always slipping through our hands, and hear me, there certainly is a place, an important place, for a wise use of time. We need to be good stewards of the time that we've been given. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 tells us to make the best use of our time. However, for us, time has primarily become something that we use. It's not a narrative or a story, but it's, it's a, jar, a jar of water with a hole at the bottom. Soon the jar will be empty so we have to drink as much water as we can right now. Time is not a great story where the best is always yet to come. Time is is, is like a dwindling bank account. Again, time is money. Time becomes just one more tool that I use to accomplish my goals and ambitions and purposes. Time is an instrument. It's not an invitation. For instance, what's your sort of gut reaction? What's your first impulse when you think about the Sabbath, God's prescribed day of rest? Do do you primarily think of it as a a waste of valuable time where you could be working? Or do you see it as a chance to to recalibrate yourself, to resituate yourself rightly in the time of God's great story? Because here's the thing, if, if, if you think the Sabbath is a waste of time, then you understand time primarily as an instrument for your use. And if time primarily is for you, then you are the hero, you are the protagonist of your story. What matters most are the things that you will do. What matters most are not the things that only God can do. Only if you are inhabiting the true story where we are the ones rescued and not the rescuers can you rightly live in, can you rightly inhabit time. So ask yourself, really think about that. What is it that you most want? If it's something that you can seemingly do to bring about, something that you can seemingly do on your own, something like romance or some prestigious job or some professional accomplishment or a certain level of wealth or a certain degree of physical health or anything like that, if that's what you most want, then you are the hero of your own story. You are the protagonist of your own narrative. Only if you most want something that only God can bring about, can you actually live in God's story in time. Only if you want something so big that only God can make it a reality. Of course, what he promises us is perfect communion with with him and our neighbors in the resurrection, in a fully restored creation. Only if you want something that big most deeply, only then can time actually be an invitation and not primarily an instrument. Only if your hope is so big that only God can be the hero of your story, Only then will you be able to rest rightly and rightly situate yourself in time. Otherwise, what else can you do but but hurry up and hurry up and hurry up and run yourself ragged and so on and so on each and every day because any rest is simply wasted time. Somebody else is going to go out there and get what you want. And again, time is always running out, so do it now. If your schedule is too hectic, here's the core problem. If your schedule is too hectic, the problem is that what you most want is too small. What you most want is too small. And so we we as a people, we need to learn to want most what only God can do. Only then will we be able to rest. Only then will we be able to live in time well. And believe me, I am speaking as much to myself here as anyone else. If there's anyone that can talk themselves out of taking a Sabbath, it's, it's a pastor. Um, if you've got a good excuse for not taking a Sabbath, I, I probably have a better one. Um, I'm just joking, but, but we all feel this. We all feel this. <sighs> I'm speaking as as someone who struggles with this hecticness. If you dread the loss of time, if you pack your schedule fuller than it should be, then you are the one telling the story, not God. Again, the Passover connected past and future. The Passover placed the Israelites in a story, specifically the story of God's great narrative of redemption. The Israelites knew where and when they were. They knew that they came from somewhere. They were the people delivered by God from Egypt, and they knew that they were going somewhere. One day they would be rescued in full by the Messiah, the long-promised King of God. In each and every Passover, they were rightly situated in time. They were properly calibrated both to the past and the future. The Passover was both a looking back and a looking forward to God's saving action, the saving action that defined Who they were and when they were. The story that they were in was not a story of their own making or telling. It's not a hectic story told by the suffocating schedules, the frenetic activity, the lack of sleep, the late nights at the office that we all know so well. It was not that kind of time. It was not a story told about time as an instrument, but time as an invitation. It is time that invites us into the great narrative of God's redemption. And so we have to ask, if that's the case, well then, what do we need saving from? What are we invited into? What is God rescuing them from? What does God promise to rescue us from? The disciples Well, they believed that the enemy that God would rescue them from was a particular group of people. In particular, they had the Romans in mind. They were sure that the Romans were evil, that the Romans were the problem. God, if you just defeat the Romans, everything will be fine. That's the story that they were living in. And we, we are not doing much better I often mention the statistic that 42% of registered voters in a political party believe that voters for the other party are, quote, downright evil. That's not the story that we're called to. But still, we're confident Jesus. They are the problem. They are the enemy. We're the good guys. They are the bad ones. Like us, the disciples are forgetting that the greater exodus to which the Passover points will be a cosmic not a national deliverance. And again, if we are in God's story, the deliverance of this greater exodus, just like the deliverance of that first exodus, it must be something that only God can do. If Jesus' kairos simply brings about something that can be done by a bigger army or bigger weapons, by a bigger political constituency or voter turnout, by more money or more cultural influence, if that's the case, if that's what Jesus' kairos is, then time is no longer God's story, but it is our story. Then time again becomes an instrument at our disposal and not the medium, not the canvas of God's grand narrative. And yes, faithfully fulfill your civic duties. That's very, very important. But don't expect these things to bring about the greater exodus. A true exodus, a true deliverance, is something that only God himself can bring about. And so again, we have to ask, what is it that this greater exodus, what is it that Jesus saves us from? And we find the answer in this passage as Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples, he tells them, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. As readers, we know that Judas has already begun his betrayal. Judas is conspiring against Jesus with the chief priests. We, we talked about that quite a bit last week. Yet in response to Jesus' revelation, we see here an A surprisingly honest instance of self-reflection from the disciples. They lament. They are sorrowful. And each, in turn, asks, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? At this moment, at this kairos, at this instance, when something long-promised is about to happen, the disciples come to terms with what all of them are very well capable of. And they perform a courageous act. Think about each disciple going around, going down the table and asking that question to Jesus and fearing that Jesus will publicly answer to them, yes, it is you. As each disciple asks, is it I, Lord? They reckon with the fact that they are no better than the Egyptians from that exodus so long ago. They come to realize that what they must be saved from is the I. Is it I, Lord? They must be rescued not from some enemy out there, but from their very selves. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn wisely wrote, If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. To realize this, to truly come to terms with this reality, is to ask with repentant and sorrowful self-reflection, is it I, Lord? And yet, there is one at the table who, who cannot seem to muster the reverence to say, is it I, Lord? Instead, Judas asks, Is it I, rabbi? Is it I, teacher? And what does Jesus say to Judas? You have said so. This response, it it informs Judas that Jesus knows what he has done, but it's subtle enough not to reveal this act to the other disciples. But even here, the disciples can't distance themselves too far from Judas, At the Passover table, Jesus tells them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In response, Peter assures Jesus that he will never, ever fall away. But Jesus tells him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you, you will deny me three times. Peter, the one who is most certain that he would never deny Jesus, is the very one who will publicly deny his Lord three times. And friends, when we are certain that we could never, ever, ever commit such an action, we are never more in danger of falling into that very thing. This very night... While Judas works, it's true, a uniquely grievous betrayal, all the disciples will deny Jesus in their own way. Is it I, Lord? Yes, in a way, it is each and every disciple, and it is each and every one of us. And that's the whole point. This is why Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. This is why his time, his kairos, is at hand. They need and we need the deliverance, which the Passover always pointed to. They need deliverance from sin, from the sin that corrupts and twists and distorts every single human heart. And at first, this might sound demeaning to you. Maybe the doctrine of sin strikes you as an affront to the dignity of humanity, but we shouldn't move too quickly here. And I wanted to appeal to Charles Taylor, again. I don't mean to mention him twice, but he brings up another important aspect of modernity and the way that we think about ourselves. He says that in modernity, we operate at what he calls a low altitude, We don't think that we're all that bad, and and the good that we ultimately hope for, it it really isn't all that great. In fact, if we asked a hundred random people, what is it that is your very deepest hope? What, What are you actually directing your whole life toward? Very likely, you would get an answer that would not be anywhere close To the great hope that God actually promises us. Again, our problem is that our desires are too weak. They're much too small. They're small enough not to seemingly require the work of God. And one key cause of this low existential altitude, argues Taylor, is actually the loss of the concept of sin. The loss of the very thing that Jesus is trying to save us from. We might initially think that to affirm sin is, 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 again, to attack the dignity of the human. To say that, that, that we're sinners, well, that's to put hurtful and harmful burdens on people. Aren't people already struggling enough with self-image and self-esteem and identity? Why on earth would you want to weigh them down even more with some outmoded notion that focuses on how bad they are rather than drawing attention to their positive potential? Aren't you just adding fuels to the fires of anxiety and insecurity that already rages inside of all of our hearts? But Taylor tells tells us to, to, to slow down a bit. Because here's the thing. To dismiss sin is to dismiss the hope that things could be so much better than they are now. Our present reality, with all of its selfishness and pain and exploitation and conflict and death, well, that's about as good as it can get. We might tweak the world here and there, but we can't really transform it. The doctrine of sin actually tells you you were meant for so, 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 so much more than this. But the rejection of sin, that tells us that this is about all that we can really hope for, give or take a few tweaks. And so, perhaps counterintuitively, the notion of sin actually affirms; it doesn't undo the dignity of the human. To say that we need salvation from sin is no more an affront to the dignity of the human than it would be an affront to the dignity of the caterpillar to say that it needs the cocoon. To tell the caterpillar that it needs a cocoon, the cocoon, it's actually to tell the caterpillar that it's meant to become a butterfly. It's no knock on the caterpillar's dignity, but it's actually the deepest affirmation of its dignity. You, you caterpillar, you are actually meant to become a butterfly. You are not meant for slowly squirming around on the ground the rest of your life. You are meant to fly. And anyone who says that you don't need the cocoon and you're just fine in your present state, they're actually insulting the full dignity and hope of what it means to be a caterpillar. And the same is true for anyone who tells you that the doctrine of sin is an insult to humanity. If we don't need salvation from sin, just like the caterpillar needs the cocoon, well, this means we have no great hope. Again, to deny the doctrine of sin is to say that we're actually meant for much, much less, not more. And again, we can only inhabit time well if our great hope and our great desire is so big that only God himself can actually bring it about. And if sin is real, then that means that we should be hoping for so, so, so much more than we see at present Sin means that our present reality is not fine, but that it is deeply flawed. It means that everything can and will be better, magnificently so, breathtakingly so. And so, yes, the doctrine of sin it takes us very low. It tells us that all of our hearts have a corruption that makes us capable of even the worst of evils. And this should make us the most humble of people. And yet the doctrine of sin at the same time takes us very, very high. It tells us that we are meant for life without death, without corruption, without evil or suffering or sorrow, in perfect, loving communion with God and neighbor. And so, if we are not the most humble and hopeful of people, we are getting something wrong And related to our earlier point, if sin is real, then you are not the hero of your own story. If sin is real, then time is not ultimately an instrument for you to bring about romantic or professional or any other kind of accomplishment. If you are a sinner, then time is primarily God's invitation to the story of his bringing the greatest of all hopes into reality. And this, of course, is exactly what Christ has come to do. This is the action of Christ, his kairos, his time, his anticipated fulfillment. And we see this in Christ's celebration of the Passover. We read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. And first, note at least one important thing here. There is no Passover lamb at this table. And that's because Jesus is that Passover lamb. Jesus tells us that the bread that is broken is his body. He tells us that the wine that is poured out, the cup that is poured out is his blood. And he tells us that all of this is done for the forgiveness of sins. Again, what do we need rescue? What do we need an exodus from? From sin. But Jesus must defeat the enemy of sin in the most unexpected of ways. He himself, again, must become the Passover lamb. And in so doing, Christ must address Two key aspects of sin, two key aspects of our great enemy, it's guilt and it's corruption. Sin makes us guilty before God, and sin corrupts us from becoming the human equivalent of the butterfly. And in Christ's act of deliverance, Christ must address both sin's guilt and sin's corruption, and we see here that he does just that. He's the Passover lamb. He will be killed. His body will be broken and his blood will be shed. But Christ won't just be killed in the place of the firstborn child like the lamb in Egypt. No, he will be killed in the place of every single child of God. Why? Because all of us, all humans, we stand guilty before God because of sin. We are sinners and we sin. We have all done wrong. To think otherwise is to think I'm one of the good guys and they, whoever they might be, they are the evil ones. But no, all of us, we have all done wrong. Again, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. To recognize oneself as a sinner is to embrace humility. To embrace humility and not to embrace the self righteous hatred of the other. But Christ has taken this guilt upon himself. And this very night, as his kairos, as his time is fulfilled, Christ will be taken to trial, falsely condemned, and killed upon the cross the very next day. But this is Christ's plan. Christ ordained all of these things before the very foundation of the world. And the Passover is fulfilled. Every single celebration of the Passover in the past was fulfilled in Christ's death upon the cross. And in his death, Christ, as the spotless lamb who lived the perfectly righteous and loving life before both God and neighbor, on the cross, he took upon himself the punishment for our sin, the guilt of our sin. He suffered the death we deserve for the guilt of our sin. And if we place our faith in him, we are covered by his blood, just as the Israelites in Egypt were covered by the blood of the Lamb. If we place our faith in Christ, Christ defeats the guilt of sin. We call this justification. He takes our guilt, and he gives us his perfect standing of righteousness before God. But we have one more aspect. What about the corruption of sin And this brings us to another important aspect of the bread and wine at the table. Think about what we do with bread and wine. We eat it and we drink it. We take it inside of ourselves. And how is it that Christ confronts the corruption of sin? Christ conforms us to himself. Christ makes us like him. Christ inwardly purges our sin and perfects our natures. Christ defeats the guilt of sin by outwardly applying his perfect righteousness to us, giving us his status. And Christ defeats the corruption of sin by inwardly working his sanctification within us. And so it is fitting that Christ calls us to eat and drink his body and blood in the bread and wine. This is the very same thing we do every week as we partake of the Lord's Supper, of the Eucharist. In commenting upon the Westminster Confessions of Faith... Uh, It's it's teaching on the Lord's Supper. The Presbyterian pastor, Sean Michael Lucas, he, he points out two very important things. He writes, First, worthy receivers of the Supper receive and feed upon Christ crucified in all of the benefits of his death. And second, in the Supper, the body and blood of Christ are surely present to the faith of believers as the elements themselves, elements being the bread and wine, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. Lucas asks, How is it that these things happen? Well, not corporally or carnally, but spiritually. He says, In a way we cannot fully grasp intellectually, when we outwardly eat and drink the visible elements, the bread and wine, we are inwardly feeding on Christ's body and blood by faith. Friends, when we come and partake of the bread and wine, when we eat and drink by faith, just as the disciples are doing here, we partake of Christ himself. Christ himself is communicated to us inwardly. As we partake of the bread and the wine by faith in Christ, we receive the grace of Christ. This is a means of grace, and we are changed from the inside. And as we eat and drink, Christ sanctifies us from the corruption of sin. This is a mystery, but it is a certainty. And what is the grace of Christ? Presbyterian theologian Michael Allen, he answers this question very, very well. He writes, Grace is not a a stuff or substance, but the personal presence and action of God. Specifically, grace is the life-giving work of Christ by his Holy Spirit. Let me read that one more time. Christ is not, or sorry, grace is not a stuff or substance, but the personal presence and action of God. Specifically, grace is the life-giving work of Christ by his Holy Spirit. And so as we partake of the supper, the Spirit makes the life-giving work of Christ present to us in a special and unique way. The Lord's Supper then becomes one of the key ways that Christ sanctifies us, that he conforms us to his own image. And so if we fail to regularly take the Lord's Supper, we are depriving ourselves of one of the chief means of Christ's work in our lives. And this too connects to time. Think about it like this. I don't mean to be overly polemical, but but the Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper tells us something very important here. Certain traditions hold that the Lord's Supper is only a sign. It's only a sign of Christ's body and blood. In other traditions, they, they hold that during the Lord's Supper, the signs, the bread, and the wine, they become the very things that they signify, Christ's body and blood. In one case, the bread and wine, have no special relation to Christ. They're just signs. In the other case, the bread and wine actually lose their own integrity as bread and wine, and they physically become the very body and blood of Christ. The distinction between sign and signified collapses. But in the Reformed understanding, the bread and the wine, they stay bread and wine. Their creational integrity is not compromised. They don't become something else. However, they do undergo a sacramental and mystical union with Christ himself so that these creational realities, bread and wine, really do, by the work of the Spirit and those with faith, they really do communicate Christ to us in a special way. And the Lord's Supper tells us that God works his saving actions through real creational realities. Christ really does sanctify us through this bread and wine that physically and substantially stays bread and wine. And the same is true for Christ's kairos, his definite and significant time. Just as Christ works through the creational elements of everyday bread and wine, so too does Christ accomplish his saving purposes in everyday time. Christ works in our actual time, in our actual history, in our actual calendar days. Christ does not work in some time beyond time like some make-believe mythology. Christ works in the here and now. Christ works in the regular elements of the bread and wine. And Christ works in the seemingly mundane moments of our actual life. And so let us take note of this. For the disciples, the very moment that they were waiting for in every Passover was now at hand. But we have to ask, did they really, really, really expect this kairos to dawn in the everyday time of their own lives? And when we come to the Lord's table, we have to ask ourselves the same question. When we come to the table... We have to remember that we too are situated in God's time. We remember that we are a people that have been saved by the true and better Passover lamb who covers us with his blood. We are a people who see time not as an instrument for our own small purposes, but an invitation into God's grand story. We are a people who have been delivered from sin as Christ takes away sin's guilt and sanctifies us from sin's corruption. We remember and we rejoice in all of this. But we also look forward. Like any great story, God's great story has a great ending. As Christ himself assures us, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Paul too tells us something similar in his teaching of the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we, must come to the Lord's table, both with remembrance, but also with hope and expectation. Christ will come again, and we will feast one day with him in the Father's kingdom. We proclaim this sure and certain hope every single time we come and partake of the elements. And just as Christ works in actual bread and wine without making it something else, Christ works in the actual time in history that we know, that we daily navigate with our daily routines and schedules. And so, ask yourself, do you really, really, really believe in our actual history, Christ will again say, my time, my kairos is at hand. And on that day, he really will come again. Think about it like this. What would your first reaction be if someone ran through the church doors right now saying, friends, here, it's here, that day. The day that we have been waiting for has finally arrived. Christ is declining from the sky, descending from the sky. And before our very eyes, he is making all things new would your first reaction be to shrug it off and to think, well, well, that can't really be happening right now? If so, you are forgetting that Christ's kairos comes in our time. One day, maybe in the next hour, maybe years and years and years from now, Christ will return. And so, we are a people who remember and also a people that hope And we are a people for those reasons who can live rightly in time. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are, all that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a past of salvation. Thank you that you promise us a future of salvation. And thank you, Lord, that all of these converge in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.